0: Good morning. A uh, couple things just for your, uh, just for your information. Um, my phone died over the weekend, so until I get a new one, if you need to contact me, you can call the church office. That number's on the bulletin, or you can email uh, dRuben at fbccarson.com. So if you're trying to call or text me, I'm not ignoring you. Uh, my phone's just dead. So those are two other ways you can get in touch with me this next week if you need to. Um, next, we have the uh, Reformation Nevada Conference coming up um, this Saturday. Now, this is something that is uh, bigger than our church. We're just hosting it here at the building, but um, you know, one of the things that I, I think is so precious and so valuable um, it, it, are local churches partnering together for the glory of Christ and the sake of the gospel. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing, right? To see local churches partnering together saying, hey, we're all on the same team here. Let's build up the body of Christ beyond our, our walls, right? Um, and this is a great opportunity for you to experience that and participate in that. So if you um, are on the fence, I'd encourage you, Uh, come to that conference you'll have uh, an opportunity to meet other like-minded believers from northern nevada to be encouraged um, by other faithful pastors in northern nevada um, who are excellent teachers of god's word um, and to learn some things right we're going to be able to get into some things that may not come up on a sunday morning um, in in depth so if you have not um, registered but you're kind of on the fence i'd encourage you come to that we're gonna have lunch together we're gonna have um, some resources available that you can pick up there so gonna be a very good time Um, and again that's this coming Saturday It's coming right around the corner so um, with that go ahead oh there's one more thing he's not gonna like this but as you can tell uh, our sanctuary looks a little bit different this morning and uh, you know really our goal is to provide more room for seating this group apparently really likes each other because they're they're all bunched in there but we want to provide a little bit more accessibility for the chairs Um, and Elder Jim Wakeling has spent basically the past week laboring hard in here. So I just want to give honor to our brother Jim. He's quietly working uh, in here. Thank you, thank you. But there, were others. there were others. There were others. Mark was assisting in that as well. But it was 95% Jim. So. so thank you, Jim, for your hard work. And to the others, thank you as well. But it was largely Jim Wakeling. So thank you, brother. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 we continue through the gospel of Matthew today Matthew chapter 15 Martin Luther, uh, the famous reformer, found himself on trial before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and a whole host of Catholic officials. And the reason? Well, Martin Luther had been openly critical of many of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church regarding the Pope's authority, regarding indulgences, uh, penance, several other things. And at this trial, Luther was put to the test. Luther, do you affirm or renounce these things that you've written? And Luther's response really is a turning point in history. And here's how he responded. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, And by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it's well known they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Now, At that moment, a conflict was taking place. The conflict between man's tradition and the scriptures. You see, Luther did not place... Trust or give weight in an ultimate sense to the opinions of popes or church councils or tradition. But only to the word of God. Now this is not a new conflict that Luther was dealing with here. This conflict between tradition and scripture. And in our text this morning in Matthew 15 we're going to see the same conflict play out as Jesus deals with the traditions of the Pharisees. And as Jesus reveals that man's tradition should not and cannot be the authority for God's people, for knowing, for worshiping, for obeying God. Instead, Scripture alone is sufficient for these things. Scripture alone is our authority. And this truth brings God's people great freedom. Let's read our text starting in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of God. Let's pray as we come to it this morning. Our great God, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, and as we consider this morning the weight of tradition versus Scripture, we thank You for Scripture to which we turn this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we hear Jesus' teaching, as we hear Him interact with the Pharisees, that You would make plain to us that Your Word is our only and ultimate authority. That we would find it to be firm ground upon which we can stand that it would be the clear revelation to which we submit. Father, I ask that you would give us understanding today of your word. That, uh, Lord, you, you would help us not to be limited in understanding by our own weaknesses or sinfulness or, or ignorance. But, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would teach us today. Father, I pray that you would help me to make the, the truth of your word plain to your people in a way that's helpful and clear. That's faithful to you and that brings honor to your name. We ask for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we left off last week where Jesus, has been, Jesus and his disciples excuse me had landed in uh, the town of Gennesaret on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was after the rough night, uh, the storm on the sea where Jesus walked on the water. And the disciples had, had been aiming for Capernaum but ended up blown off course and landed in Gennesaret, which was still in the region of Galilee. And it's where Jesus healed many people. And as we come to our text this morning, it seems that Jesus and his disciples are still there. They're still in Gennesaret when they receive a visit. We see in verse 1 that a group of Pharisees and scribes has traveled all the way from Jerusalem to visit Jesus. And some of you may be familiar with the Pharisees and scribes, but just for a little bit of context and, and history, the Pharisees were a group of Jewish religious leaders. And Generally speaking, they were concerned with helping ordinary Jewish people keep their Jewish identity and obey Jewish law while under Gentile occupation, under Gentile rule. The Pharisees were deeply concerned with the Jewish people resisting Greek and Roman culture, which they rightly viewed as pagan. So the Pharisees concerned themselves deeply with Torah, uh, with the first five books of, of the Bible, of course, or the law of Moses, but they also added something to that called the Oral Torah, the oral teaching, oral tradition. And really what the oral Torah was, was a rabbinic commentary on the Mosaic law. It was basically the rabbis coming up with how do we actually obey these laws. For example, it says do not work on the Sabbath. Well, the oral tradition would define what work is. What are the limits and boundaries? How many steps can you take before that becomes work? Those kinds of questions the oral tradition sought to answer. Many of the Pharisees believed that this oral Torah, the tradition, was actually given to Moses on Sinai alongside the written Torah. And that it had been passed down from generation to generation. And it's going to become very relevant for the rest of our passage and a few verses. The scribes were well-trained scholars who knew the law of God inside and out. They memorized it, they copied it, and they helped teach it and explain it to the people. Uh, They would generally wear special robes, they were a well-respected group in Jewish society, um, and because of their common devotion to the law, we find scribes and Pharisees working together in the Gospels quite frequently. So these religious leaders, these experts in the law, have made the long journey to Gennesaret from Jerusalem. That's a journey of about 80 miles. And they're making this either on foot or, or perhaps on donkey or camel. Uh, it's a journey of at least a couple days. Jerusalem is the heart of Jewish religious life. The temple is there. All the rabbinic schools of learning are there. And they have left Jerusalem to come see Jesus. They probably have not come because they want to be his disciples. But rather they want to investigate this rabbi in the north who's becoming very popular. Who's gaining quite a reputation. They want to see what he's all about. And so in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes come. They visit Jesus. And they come with an accusatory question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's what they ask Jesus. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's a loaded question. That's a loaded question. And it's a very revealing question that they ask. If we were to look at this in in, in the Greek that it was originally written, the Pharisees used something called a present tense verb. And really all that means is they're describing an action that's ongoing, that's repeated. So, so we, could, we could basically say, why do your disciples continue to make a practice of, break over and over and over and over the traditions of the elders? Why is that what they do all the time? The word break that we see too here is, is telling as well. It can also be translated transgress, which is a word we often associate with God's law. And of course, Jesus' disciples would reflect the teaching of their rabbi, that's how it was, right? Disciples would reflect what their uh, rabbi taught them. There's an implication here that if the disciples aren't washing their hands and keeping the traditions of the elders, then maybe Jesus doesn't care about these traditions either. And the traditions in question are those of the elders. Those are the traditions of the oral Torah, the oral law, which I mentioned a moment ago. And this oral tradition was given divine authority, really, So the specific aspect of the oral Torah that's in question here is eating with unwashed hands. Right, That's what the, the, uh, the Pharisees decide to focus on. Why do your disciples continue to break the tradition of the elders by eating with unwashed hands? And Mark 7, 3-4 describes this tradition. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the tradition of the elders and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now this tradition um, w- was most likely uh, originating from the, the desire to be separate from the Gentiles. For example, when a Jewish person would come back from the marketplace, they probably touched something that a Gentile touched and they needed to wash their hands so they would be, they'd be pure. But here's the problem, in, in the written Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There was no biblical command for the people to eat with washed hands. You won't find it there. There, there. there was a command for the priests to do so before they went into the tabernacle to minister. But there's no command that the Jewish people needed to wash their hands any they ate or whenever they came back from the marketplace. No, this tradition, while maybe hygienic, right, and we can appreciate it uh, at that level, it was nothing more than a man-made rule. It was nothing more than a man-made rule. It was nothing more than a tradition created by human beings. And regardless of the intention behind the, of those who created it, right? The intention behind it, it's a human command. It's a human command. And in this moment, where the Pharisees ask Jesus this question, we see the conflict arise. A conflict between Jesus. And the system of Jewish traditional thought, Jewish law, Jewish worship. Really a conflict between man's rules and traditions and God's. You see, this question from the Pharisees and scribes reveals their standard of authority. It's man's tradition. That's what they're standing on is their authority. They're not asking this question because they're curious. They're not asking this question because maybe Jesus has an insight they don't have. They're asking this question Because they're really implying the disciples are sinning by not eating with washed hands. That they're made unclean and impure by neglecting this tradition that the people had kept for centuries and centuries. And again, this conflict is not new. This this elevation of man's tradition as authority is not new. Uh, Of course, one of the largest and most well-known examples of this, we've heard about already, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church has taught uh, so many things as authoritative tradition, and and really they do something very similar to the Pharisees. They believe that Scripture and sacred church tradition are equal in weight and authority. What does that result in? That results in traditions being enforced as the very law of God. For example, uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches it's a sin to knowingly eat meat on Fridays during Lent. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. You won't find it. It's not there. But since they believe the church has the authority of Christ to make these kinds of laws, they believe that they can enforce it with the weight of divine authority, just like the Pharisees did regarding their oral tradition. What does that do? That enslaves people to legalistic human tradition rather than providing the freedom that God's word can provide and does provide. In many ways, this is an ongoing conflict. It's been ongoing since the beginning of time as man seeks to create and enforce his own religious rules and traditions. We could, we could really go back to the garden where God gives a clear command to Adam and Eve, keep the garden, work it, do not eat of this one tree or you will die. Clearly stated, the serpent comes in and says, hey, but did God really say that? Or maybe could we understand that this way? Let's, let's add and take away and, and change what God has clearly said. That's been going on. Throughout all of history, and it will continue until Christ returns. But as Jesus will show in a verse or two, this is disastrous and it has unacceptable effects. Now, if you were asked this question why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? How might you respond? Well, Jesus responds in a way that he often does with another question, as we see in verse 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Notice he doesn't even engage with their question about hand washing. That's not even worth Jesus' time. He doesn't refute that particular point because there's a much bigger issue at stake regarding the role of human tradition. And Jesus' re- response, his question here is really quite forceful. right? This is, this is what we call a comeback. Right? This is is a burn. He asks them, why do you break God's command? And he uses the same present tense verb here. Why are you continuously over and over and over making a practice of breaking the command of God for the sake of your tradition? He turns it right back around on them. The Pharisees, of course, have appealed to the tradition and authority of the elders, but Jesus doesn't let them get away with that. He responds to them, this is your tradition, scribes and Pharisees. Don't put it on the elders. You are continuing to teach it. You are carrying it forward. You are accountable for putting these things on the shoulders of God's people. You are accountable, scribes and Pharisees, for treating yourselves as authority. But what does Jesus appeal to? He appeals to a different authority. The commandment Of God, the commandment of God. This is what Jesus considers to be truly authoritative revelation. The written, notice, written word of God, his clearly stated law and commands. Uh, Jesus gives man-made rules zero weight, zero authority in themselves. It is God and his authority, revealed through his word, uh, the scriptures, that bear true and final authority. That's what Jesus appeals to here. and The battle lines are really clear. They're set now. Jesus is saying the command of God, his written word is the authority. The Pharisees are saying we need to add to that the traditions of man. But Jesus does not accept the oral Torah. He doesn't accept the oral tradition. He appeals to one source of authority alone, Scripture. And this is a vitally important point tradition and scripture cannot both have equal authority it can't happen inevitably always one must and will have more authority than the other if you try to uphold both tradition and scripture as equal you'll end up in the position of the pharisees breaking god's commands for the sake of in preference of in favor of your tradition and jesus goes on to give a specific example of one way the pharisees do this in uh, verse 4 through 6. And notice Jesus again starts by stating what God commanded in verse 4. Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. These are not things Jesus is making up on the spot. right? He's not creating his own tradition here. They're clear statements from the written word of God. These were the Hebrew scriptures he's quoting here. The fifth commandment from Exodus 20. In Exodus 21, 17, an expansion on the fifth commandment. The fact that this is Jesus' starting place is very, very important. Jesus points to Scripture alone as the source of authority. That's where he goes, to what's been written as having the authority of God himself. How do we know what God's will is for us? How do we know what God wants us to do or to believe? We turn to Scripture. Not our ideas, not traditions. That's not where Jesus goes. He goes to Scripture. He stands not on what man thinks or creates, but on what God has said, just like he did when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And notice here too that Jesus isn't disagreeing or getting rid of the law. He he doesn't have this view that we sometimes find in in Christianity today, that the law of God doesn't matter anymore. That since we're Christians, we don't need God's commands. We, We just have, grace and charity and liberty and love and Jesus doesn't approach things that way he appeals to the 10 commandments here he appeals to god's law god's law is not legalistic All right that's where Jesus is that's where he goes here god's commands are not legalism they are good jesus upholds them here it's not god's commands that are legalistic but man's tradition in the place of god's commands that's really legalism and that's what Jesus is tearing down here and Jesus is abundantly clear. God commanded. He is the one who's established these commands. Now, it's important to note the Pharisees wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't say, "Well, you know what? We don't like those commands." They wouldn't say, "Yeah, we actually don't. We don't care about the law." They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't disagree with these verses that Jesus is quoting here. They wouldn't reject them, right? They they, they could pass a test right on the law. They were, they were, in theory, zealous for the law even. and Paul describes himself that way when he was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. But their transgression of God's commands was not an outright, open, rebellious one, but it was, as, as, as Calvin describes it, an indirect transgression, an indirect breaking of God's commands. What does that mean? Well, we see in verse 5 and 6 when Jesus describes how they are actually rejecting God's commands. He contrasts, for God commanded in verse 4 with, but you say, in verse 5. Again, the Pharisees are setting themselves up as authorities when they teach their traditions. Um, and, and what Jesus describes here is uh, the teaching of the Pharisees. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. This is, this is what was called uh, korban. And we see that mentioned explicitly in Mark 7, his, his account of this event. Uh, Korban. Jesus describes um, a a kind of loophole that was there in the Pharisaical tradition. Really the Pharisees taught that if somebody dedicated what they had to God, they didn't need to give it to their parents or anybody else. By implication they they didn't need to honor their father or mother in that particular area. Um, So this was an allowable practice in the oral tradition. It wasn't commanded but it was allowed. Uh, it speaks of, as one commentator describes, dedicating food, money, or property to God, which in practice meant to the temple treasury. Anything so dedicated was placed out of reach of other people who might have otherwise had a claim on it. And the formula seems to have been deliberately used for this purpose. So what people would do is they would say, hey, I've got all this, this land here, for example, or I've got this, this uh, you know, wealth, and I'm going to dedicate it to God, which means I'm gonna dedicate it to the temple. That doesn't mean they actually lost possession of it. They could still use their land or use their wealth, but by saying this is dedicated to God, nobody else could have access to it. Now in Jesus's day, of course, one of the ways you honored your parents was by providing for them when they became old and could not work anymore or care for themselves. But this tradition of Korban, which was given such high authority, allowed sinful people to create a loophole to avoid honoring their parents. They said, well, I don't want to give all that stuff to my mom and dad. I want to keep it for myself, so I'm just going to put this label for God on it, and now they can't touch it, right? Well, sorry, sorry, mom and dad. Can't help you. There was no social security in Jesus' day, right? This was the way people would be cared for. And yet the command of God was cast aside. Right? It's not wrong to dedicate things to the temple treasury or, or it's not wrong to dedicate things to God. That's, that's okay. But such a tradition was allowed to break what God had clearly stated. Right At that point, the command, the fifth commandment should have been upheld. The tradition should have been rejected. But the tradition took the place of the clearly revealed command of God. That's how the commands are indirectly broken. The traditions of the Pharisees created ways that people could ignore and put aside what God had clearly stated, giving them in their minds a justification to disobey God because a religious authority told them they could. Now, you know, we're talking about traditions, and I want to um, qualify a little bit what I'm saying about traditions for a moment. Traditions are not inherently bad. You have traditions, right? We all have traditions. Uh, maybe your tradition is going home and taking a nap on Sunday afternoon, which is great tradition, good for you. Um, other traditions maybe around the holidays, right? You do certain things on Christmas or certain birthday traditions, and those things are fine, right? Traditions in themselves are not necessarily inherently bad. Some traditions are even helpful, right? Some of them are even helpful. But here's where tradition goes wrong, when it's enforced on other people, right? You have no right to make people follow your traditions. You don't have that authority. You know, if we had a tradition here at church that, The fourth Sunday of the month, everybody wears purple. Well, if we start enforcing that, that's a problem. That's a problem. So when it's enforced on other people, tradition becomes a problem. When tradition is attributed to God or given divine authority, that's a problem. It's misrepresenting God to say, well, God wants us to do this, right? God wants us not to eat meat on, on Fridays during Lent. That's misrepresenting God. That's lying about what he has actually said. So it's a problem when you attribute traditions to God or, or give them divine authority. It is a problem when traditions contradict God's word. It's a tradition when they con- It's a, an issue when they contradict God's word. Most of our traditions may be neutral, right? They're okay, right? You know, we have this flavor birthday cake on your birthday. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about that. That's fine. But when it's an issue of this, for example, right? Where, well, you can do this with your property, you can devote it to God, and then you don't have to keep the fifth commandment anymore. Well, that's contradicting God's word. That's contradicting scripture. That tradition is wrong. That's a problem. And finally, when tradition is elevated above God's word. Tradition should never be given the place of authority over scripture. That's man attempting to place himself above God. So these are ways we can evaluate, is a tradition good, is it helpful, or is it a problem? Has it been made into a problem? And we see the Pharisees doing all these things, right? They've enforced it on other people. They've attributed it to God. It contradicts God's word. It's elevated above the scriptures, right? They've done all those things. And the result of that is nothing less than what we see Jesus charge them with in the second part of verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, Jesus says. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. The Pharisees have preferred their tradition above Scripture. They have put more effort and more thought into upholding their man-made rules over the commands of God. And the result is that God's word has been made void. That means to nullify, to make powerless, to empty. Now, Jesus is not saying that God's word has actually lost power in itself, right? That somehow the Pharisees have drained the battery of the Scriptures or something like that. Really what he's saying is that by putting tradition in the driver's seat, Putting tradition as the authority, the Pharisees have practically treated God's word as empty, useless, and have ascribed more power to their tradition. That's what Jesus is saying. When tradition is elevated above Scripture, Scripture will always be made a slave of tradition and ultimately made void. And that was a central issue at stake in the Reformation. What is the Christian's authority? What's the Christian's authority? Is it the church's traditions or, or councils, the dogmas and decrees of the Pope? Or is it Scripture? Is it Scripture? Fundamentally, the Reformation was a return to the Scripture as the ultimate source of authority for the Christian, a return to the Bible, right? which at that point had been essentially made void by human tradition. And this is the thing, right? Um, man-made traditions... Do not have divine wisdom. What I mean when I say that is God created you. He created you for a purpose, which is to know Him and glorify Him, worship Him, enjoy Him forever. His commands, once we become Christians, right, the function of His commands are primarily to teach us how to honor Him and how to enjoy Him. When we walk in obedience to God's commands, we enjoy Him far more than when we don't. Amen? God's commands actually bring us the freedom of having close communion with Him, the joy and peace of having close communion with Him. Because God has given them to us with His wisdom and for that purpose. That's what we find in Scripture. Jim read that this morning in Psalm 19, a perfect picture of that. Human traditions don't and cannot have that design because they do not have divine wisdom behind them. Traditions enslave people because uh, really they have human motivations and human ideas behind them. But those things cannot bring us into the freedom and joy of knowing God that only his commands can. That's why God's word not only must be our ultimate source of authority, but our greatest treasure. And this brings up an important question for each one of us. What is my ultimate source of authority for knowing and worshiping God? Is it Is it scripture or is it just what I think about God? Is it my speculations? Is it the traditions that I grew up with? What is your ultimate source of authority for living life? Is it the tradition of what other people around you are doing or what culture says or just your own personal opinions on the matter? Or is it what's clearly stated in the word of God? If you're a Christian, you have the rich, life-giving treasure of God's word, his clearly written and revealed will for you in scripture. Don't neglect that. Don't make the word of God void in your own life by by relying on human reason and wisdom and thought and tradition to tell you how to live. So many people throw scripture aside, practically speaking, in favor of some other source of authority. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees have done. Uh, Tragically, they're supposed to be teachers of the law, aren't they? They're supposed to be the experts here. But they've thrown the law of God aside. They've rendered it powerless by replacing it with tradition. And Jesus hates that. Jesus despises that. You can see in his tone, he's taking a very hard-edged tone with, with these leaders here. He is indignant about his people being enslaved and led astray by human tradition that does not bring life or righteousness. And he continues with his rebuke in the next couple verses here. And Jesus has already settled the matter. He's already already shown them what's what, but he's not done. He's going to let them have it some more. He's pointed out a problem with the way the Pharisees have elevated their tradition above God's commands, but now Jesus is going to get a little personal. Verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. That's not a nice word, is it? But it is a righteous use of this word by the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the first time Jesus has called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. And it's not going to be the last time he is going to call them that either, but it is the first time he calls them that to their face. It's a sharp rebuke, but Jesus has good reason to call them this. We're familiar with this word hypocrite, generally speaking, right? Somebody who says one thing but does another. And that essentially applies to the Pharisees here. They, They teach everybody that the law of God is so important, and they try to get the Jewish people to care about God's law to prevent paganism from slipping in. But then they completely undermine themselves by putting their traditions above the law of God and breaking the commands for the sake of their tradition. right? They claim all, all kinds of godliness and religious zeal and concern for the law and, and, and reverence for God. But their priorities clearly lie elsewhere. They are hypocrites. They are hypocrites. And though Jesus is God in the flesh, has all authority in himself, he turns once again to the scriptures. He turns once again to the scriptures. We've seen him quote from the law. Now we see him quote from the prophets. Once again, demonstrating a reliance and reverence, not for tradition, but for the scriptures. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and states that Isaiah prophesied well about the scribes and Pharisees. What does does Jesus mean when he says this? Was Isaiah looking forward Having a a vision of the scribes and Pharisees, is this a future prediction? That's not what Jesus means here. Um, Really, Jesus means that the scribes and Pharisees are parallel. They are an analogy to what Isaiah prophesied about. They are the same kind of situation. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. And, and, And for a little context, Isaiah 29 is a chapter that focuses on Jerusalem, specifically on the impending siege of Jerusalem, It was going to come upon them as judgment from God. And the siege was the siege of the Assyrians under Sennacherib in 701 B.C. And it was a devastating event in history. And why did this siege come upon Jerusalem back in Isaiah's day? Well, there's quite a few reasons. Their idolatry, their immorality. But another reason was their hypocrisy, which this verse highlights. In Isaiah's day, things were Pretty similar to Jesus' own day. There was a devotion to the temple, a devotion to human traditions, religious hypocrisy, corrupt religious leaders. And Jesus says, What Isaiah prophesied about mirrors you exactly, scribes and Pharisees. So he quotes from Isaiah and indicts the Pharisees and scribes for, for three things that the people of Judah were guilty of 700 years earlier. Three things. The first we see in verse 8 is that the scribes and Pharisees are guilty of honoring God with their lips while their heart is far from Him. On the outside, they did all the right religious things, right? The Pharisees prayed the right prayers. They followed the right rules. They said the right words. They washed the right hands, right? In principle, they're concerned with keeping the law rigidly on the outside. But they have no love for God. They have no real relationship with Him. Their hearts were far from Him. They had a relationship with His laws. But even that relationship was was hypocrisy, right? It was hypocritical. It was one of duty, not of love. Now, this doesn't mean God could care less about the way we worship Him externally. God does care about that. It is important to Him. So much of what's called worship in the American church externally actually exalts man and offends God. So God does care about how we worship, which is why he's given instructions in how to worship in his word. But God cares even more about the heart behind it. God cares even more about the heart that our worship should flow from. Uh, King David understood this well when he wrote Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God cares about the way we worship Him. But if that worship doesn't flow from a heart that loves Him, that seeks to draw near to Him as the living God, it is not good worship. It is not pleasing to Him. It is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's just like the Pharisees friends, are we guilty of the same offense? Do you want to be one who appears to be a very good Christian on the outside, but on the inside you love your religious appearance more than you love God? That could be such an easy trap to fall into, but it's hypocrisy. And we must repent of that. We must humble ourselves. We must draw near to God. That's our responsibility, so to speak, in worship. That should be what motivates us. To come to God is a heart that desires to be near him. Psalm 84 says, right? Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And it's it's a hypocritical approach to worship that leads to the second charge Jesus and Isaiah bring against the Pharisees and scribes. They are guilty of offering vain worship. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me. Really what this means is empty worship meaningless. It's of little or no value. It is unacceptable and displeasing to God. God does not approve of all kinds of worship. We need to understand that. God cares very deeply about how we worship Him. In vain worship, He rejects. Vain worship that is man-centered, that lacks love and a heart Of reverence for him does not please him at all. And this, you know, this isn't talking about the days where maybe it's more of a struggle to get up and come to church, right? This isn't talking about when maybe my heart just feels cold towards God today and I don't want it to be there, but I'm just struggling to have my affections fixed upon him. We all have those those days, right? And sometimes when we have those days, we say, but you know what, I want to obey him. Maybe I don't feel very excited, but I love God, I want to honor Him, so I'm going to do this, even though my affections maybe aren't as engaged as I want. That's not vain worship. right? That's not vain worship. That is a good thing to do. Vain worship is talking about traditionalistic, ritualistic, religious acts that mean nothing to those doing them, and that mean nothing to God, who sees the heart behind them. right? God sees right through our worship. He can tell if our worship is just an empty Shell. Right, again, I I don't mean to keep picking on this group here, but it's hard not to see parallels to the ritualism of the Roman Catholic Church, which is very externally and aesthetically pleasing, but which is biblically bankrupt and often devoid of true love for God. Just something to do, because I think maybe I'll get this from God if I do it. And when people drift towards vain and empty worship, it's inevitable that the third thing Jesus mentions will happen. The commandments of men will be taught as doctrine, verse 9. In other words, man's tradition becomes elevated to the place of divine truth, which really has been the emphasis and problem of this entire passage, the heart of this conflict. Really, such a devotion to human tradition leads people away from truly truly knowing and loving God. It causes people to focus on things that really don't matter and ignore things that really do. There's been moments in the history of American Christianity where the sign of being a really faithful Christian was you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go with girls that do, right? You don't dance, you go to the movies, you don't play cards, right? Where those were the marks of piety and holiness. And when you focus on those things, right, which are akin to modern-day hand-washing, simple, easy behaviors, you neglect the heart. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't smoke. And I'm really proud of that. not going to focus on loving my neighbor at all, or uh, you know, seeking the fruits of the Spirit. I'm not gonna um, obey God's commands and how I treat my spouse, but I don't smoke. That doesn't please God at all. God cares far more how you love your neighbor than whether you smoke. We cannot replace God's commands with easy legalistic traditions. Right? And God's commands we can't do by ourselves. We need His help to do it. And we, we must understand that, right? Traditions just build up pride and self-righteousness because we can do them without the help of the Holy Spirit. But God's commands, we cannot do them apart from Him. We need Him. Those traditions cause people to focus on things that don't really matter and ignore the things that do. And Really, this is, in a way, a passage about worship. It's a passage about worship. Worship is not just what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It is the way we live our life. Now, Jesus is deeply concerned about God being worshipped rightly from the heart. And because of this, he despises the approach of the Pharisees and scribes. And when you think about it, Jesus himself is antithetical to these things. While the Pharisees care about externals and ignore the heart, Jesus is primarily concerned about the heart. His teaching is directed right at the heart which God sees. While while the Pharisees perform vain worship, Jesus lives in in constant and loving communion and worship of His Heavenly Father. While the Pharisees and scribes teach tradition as doctrine, Jesus' teaching brings the Scriptures and God's intent for the Scriptures to the center stage of authority, casting aside the bondage of human tradition. So what does this mean for us? The Pharisees and scribes are, are, are gone. right? Their ghost remains in many religious movements today, but What does this mean for us today? Well, I think there's a few points we can consider. One, what is your authority? What is your authority? At the end of the day, you're left with either Scripture or human tradition and reason. Jesus stands on the Scriptures as authoritative and destroys the authority of human tradition. Do you stand with Jesus in viewing the Scriptures as authoritative? And and this is actually key. This is actually key. Some of you maybe are not Christians. right? Maybe you're considering Christianity or maybe you, you haven't been to church for a long time. Maybe you are not living a vibrant Christian life. right? Maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian at all. And you say, well, I'm not a Christian. Why does the Bible matter to me? Well, because, friend, at the end of the day, it tells you the way that you might be saved. It tells you that Christ has lived a perfect and righteous life in your place, that he has died in your place to bear the penalty of your sins, that he rose again three days later so that by faith in him, you can have everlasting life, reconciliation with God, and the forgiveness of your sins. You won't get that from human tradition. You won't get that from your own reason or opinions. You can only get it from Scripture. So the question of authority, in essence, is one of your eternal destinies. Because it is only through the authority of the scriptures that we know the way that God has provided for man to be saved. So, what is your authority? And number two, are there areas where you might be casting aside the tradition, or excuse me, the commandments of God in favor of tradition? Are there areas where you might be casting aside the commands of God in favor of tradition? Right? When you think about your life as a Christian, What are the things that pop in mind? Are they, well, I'm really good at doing this and this and this and this and this, and these are the ways I know I'm a good Christian, right? Because I drive myself to church 52 Sundays a year, so I'm a really good Christian. (laughs) Church attendance is awesome, a vital part of the Christian life, but you can get in a car and drive to a building without the help of the Holy Spirit, right? It's easy to focus on human traditions and neglect God's commands. So are there things where you might be casting aside God's commands, clearly stated and revealed, for tradition? For tradition. Hand washing was easy for the Pharisees. Loving their neighbor was not. Third, are there areas where your heart is far from God, though externally you do the right Christian things? Is your worship that flows from some that flows from your love for God, or is it just something that you maybe do as a task to be completed? Right? Do your lips use the right Christian ease while your heart sings a song of discontentment and sinfulness and absence from God. And really when we're we're looking at Jesus' engagement with the Pharisees, when we're considering these questions about tradition and the word of God, we see that the intersection of love and obedience is the foundation for true worship. What what did Jesus himself say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not you will keep the traditions of men. Not Keep my commandments, but your heart can be far from me. It's fine. But no, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the heart of true worship. A heart that loves Christ and that seeks to obey him. And if we have those things missing, we are not worshiping him rightly. And we could say we're not worshiping him at all. Let's pray and ask for God's help in loving Christ and keeping his commands our lord and our god we thank you for the clarity of your word and that this morning we are given such a clear picture lord jesus of your own view of scripture which is that it is our ultimate and final authority lord your commands are good and lord when we are found in you they are life giving when we obey them not to try to earn our salvation but when we Obey them because we love you. Because we have obtained salvation in you. Your commandments are so good, Lord. We pray that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to love you. Not just to do acts of worship while neglecting the heart, but rather, Lord, our our love for you and our obedience to your commands would, would intersect, Lord, at the heart of our worship. That we would draw near to you not just with our lips, but with our heart. And yet, Lord, that we would still place ultimate and high regard on your commands. Father, help us to see that love and obedience to your word go together. And Father, give us discernment if there are traditions in our own lives that have uh, unseated the place of the word of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to find great security in the authority of your word. Lord, that we don't need to wonder what human teacher we need to listen to and whose opinions matter most, but Lord, that we have been given the clear objective standard of Scripture as our authority. And Lord, again, may that bring us rest, may that bring us security, and may we trust your word and obey it out of love for you and by the power of your spirit. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.